Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello, my name is Jerry Scullion and welcome to Bringing Design Closer, which is part of This Is HCD. I'm a service design practitioner and trainer based in Dublin City, Ireland. Bringing design into organisations is hardly ever straightforward. It comes with its own unique set of problems. In Bringing Design Closer, we discuss with thought leaders around the world what has worked for them in enabling design revolutions to occur. Recently, I received a beautiful gift box of books from BIS publishers in the Netherlands. And I saw one book that I really liked the title of, and that was Thinking in Services by Majid Iqbar. Now, Thinking in Services is something that the service design community have been speaking about for quite some time. But what Majid has been able to do and articulate so well is he's broken it down into three key areas. And as a result, we're going to record a three-part series over 2019, which will allow us to go deep down into the dissection of it all. Now, let me tell you a bit about Majid. Majid is a former professor at Carnegie Mellon and is now based in the Netherlands. And in this episode, we really focus on what a service is and what a service is not. Now, it might seem like a simple question, but the answer is not straightforward. And as we discuss, now I have a copy of Majid's book to give away. So to be under the chance, make sure you're on the This Is Hate City newsletter. So just go over to the website and sign up. Anyway, let's get straight into the conversation with Majid. Majid Iqbal, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, so where are you coming from today? I am uh, right now in Utrecht, Netherlands. I spend a lot of time in the US as well. I live in both countries. And uh, I've been here uh, the past uh, few days. Uh, I had to teach a workshop recently. Nice. Very good. I love the Netherlands. Um, but let's kick off. I received your book, Thinking and Services, from the lovely guys in BIS in the Netherlands um, a couple of months ago and really enjoyed it. I won't lie, I'm a third of the way through. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big book and it's definitely one that I can't read continuously. I'm just like, I have to sit, put it down and then think. But before we get into a little bit more around what we're going to chat today about, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. So I'm, I'm a consultant and uh, I work mostly with the government and commercial enterprises. And I've been doing that for the last about 15, 20 years. And before that, it was a, I was a product manager. I began, in fact, I began my career in sales. So I've had a checkered past, to put it that yeah. way. But it was about around 15 years ago that I got into this whole world of services because back then I was at Carnegie Mellon and, and we were uh, at that time researching this whole phenomena called outsourcing. Contracts with millions and billions being signed with a lot of risk in them. So people were beginning to get afraid of this thing called outsourcing. But fundamentally, outsourcing is basically a, an arrangement for services. And that's how I began my inquiry into services. And around the same time, the dean of uh, the Heinz School of Public Policy and Management and I, we had a chat and the discussion led to me creating a new course at Carnegie Mellon. And I felt like for an economy that is supposedly 70% services. We're not teaching many courses and services. So I, I created a new course called Managing Service Organizations. Right. And that's how I got into the business of trying to explain to people what services are, you know, what they can be, why, why they even exist, and 
went deeper and deeper into that. So that's how I, I began interested in the in the design of services. And it's it's a great topic because I've just come back from Stockholm. I was there for the last couple of days and I had the same conversation with lots of different people about what is service design. And we, we can talk about that, you know, till the cows come home, as we say in Ireland. <laughs> but um, we're not going to chat about that today. We're just going to chat around the definition of a service. Yeah. And I, I think that's it's a really interesting conversation because there's multiple definitions out there at the moment, but what you've broken down in the book so succinctly is to outline the role of people, the role of things, and the role of patterns. So let's talk a little bit more about your understanding of what a service is. Absolutely. As I was structuring the book and writing it, I thought, I think by chapter one, I should take that question head on. But it's also such a difficult question, right? What, what are services? Yeah. We talk so much about them. And then you talk about services at, at a very macro level. If you take this notion of GDP, you break it down into goods and services. And there it seems very clear that there's goods and there's services and two ways in which we measure economic output. And then we get into the more colloquial discussions or, or language where we talk about products and services, right? We somehow shift without even noticing. We say products and services. So, so it begins right there, the original sin, right? Goods and services are really how you measure economic output. But when you talk about, mm. we switch to the marketing language of products and services. And uh, it's almost no point correcting, you know, people that, no, 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 it's goods and services. Services are, in fact, a kind of of a product, right? They are products because we can produce them and they're products because we can price them. They're products because they're certain we can assure that something will come out and it's of value. And that's interesting because of late, uh, especially if you look at the uh, philosophies and frameworks of things like Agile and DevOps, right? You hear a lot more about product owners and product backlogs and product development, and people are shipping product even when it's services. Hmm. So I was I was thinking like, oh man, how do I really address this question? Because yet another definition could perhaps be futile. Yeah. So I came up with an idea. I came up with this in my book. We have two professional skeptics, uh, Jerry Maguire <laughs> and Thomas Doubting. Yeah. Um, I hope everybody gets the references. I know, yeah. Uh, and Thomas Doubting and Jerry Maguire are, are skeptics. They're also uh, trained in the dialectic method. So we give them a statement, they criticize it. And, and in the course of this discussion, we sort of arrive at what we might call a tentative definition. And that is... Yeah. Services are performances and affordances, producing outcomes that satisfy a set of customer needs. So that's where we sort of left it, at least in the book. So just go back to, you mentioned dialectic methods there, and I know some people mightn't understand what dialectic methods are. And just Andy Plain has got his Power of 10 podcast, and this is HCD as well, and the different Zoom levels. So, so talk to me a little bit more about that. Oh, well, this, I believe it goes back to uh, philosophers discussing an idea mm. and an idea being presented in opposition to the idea or criticism of the idea leads to the other person revising it and going back and forth. Uh, this opposition dialogue leads to improvement of the idea because each person counters with criticism. So that's really, uh, as I understood it, how the dialectic method works, though I'm not trained in philosophy. And I thought uh, it might be a better understanding instead to a better way to arrive at a definition, a definition that we can live with or work with. Because 
when we talk about defining what are services or what are service design, what do, what are we really trying to accomplish? Are we trying to make it easier for an alien farm who arrives on Earth, picks up a dictionary and says, encounters this term called services and maybe describing it? Is that a definition? Or is the definition more in terms of like services are an object or a thing that needs to have a more formulaic definition, like define water? two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. There's never, ever debate around that. That's a different kind of a definition, which I think is more interesting from a design perspective. Because if I were to design water, I have some basis uh, on designing a water molecule, which is less goal. subject to... Yeah, that's exactly. That's less subject to semantics, mm. right? If, I, if I'm just curious how a discussion in Japanese would go about what our services, <laughs> because we're not using English, right? Yeah. And we're not uh, prone to the same uh, semantic traps or in German or, or in Swahili or Bengali, right? Yeah. So do you think the thing about trying to define service and service design is more likely to be native to the English language? I think so, because so much of literature in this area comes from the English-speaking world, and there are perhaps historical reasons for that. But also, I think it has to do with the fact that the present thinking on services originates from consumer services marketing. When I had to teach that course, as I mentioned earlier, I did a literature review, and there was this dominant thinking. And this is the stage for some of the terminology we use today, like front stage and backstage, yeah. service scape. So the I think the imagery leads to the language and still services are known, seen as these performances. Uh, that's why we use the word stage, right? They're more, more likely to be seen as performances that we have to orchestrate and choreograph. But then it makes it easier, uh, the imagery makes it easier for people to understand a few very quick examples of services. But then if we, part of my effort with the book is to broaden the definition of what services are, because oh my gosh, there's so many different kinds of services. And, yeah. and that's partly the problem with defining what services are. Now, sometimes what happens is that it is okay to narrow the definition as because it speeds things up. It makes uh, things clearer within a community of practice. But then that leads to jargon and therefore leads to more parochial interpretations of what services are. So there, there's, there's the problem there, right? So there is a Zoom level going on within the term service is what I'm hearing. It's like, as it zooms out, the definition broadens. Yeah. And then it becomes less useful from a practical uh, yeah. perspective, right? It, le- it becomes less useful. It, it's, it, so the question is, should we start by broadening our understanding of services, first understanding them in the broadest possible sense, all kinds of services, right? Mm. One of the things uh, I talk about is uh, services that we don't even see or take for granted. They exist, but we can't mm. see them. And therefore, how do you see the journey map? Yeah. Or how do you? Who is the user there? So my my advice or my thinking is that first get a broader and a deeper. And I, I sort of talk about you when you broaden your uh, your scope. You know, you deepen your understanding. Yeah. And then one, for example, has to say, for example, you're part of an agency that is leading digital transformations, hmm. then you necessarily have to be more specific yeah. and narrowing on the particular types of things that you're designing. And then it's okay to speak a language that is more specific, uses particular words, and then you do not have to worry about it. So I think that's the challenge that I guess designers have. Yeah, If I'm designing, say for, say for example, I'm designing um, a multi-million dollar contract between a hospital and a janitorial services or laundry, right? Mm. At that level, I'm thinking more in terms of 
you know, the contract, what are we agreeing to? What's going to happen in the broadest possible terms? What are the financials of it, right? So in that sense, lawyers are designers of services because the contract gives shape to the actual service. Absolutely. But then if you're designing, making it easy for people to very quickly, and there's a lot of work going on, in, especially, for example, in the UK, in the US, uh, well, actually around the world with digital services. Yeah then your your definition of first service could be much more narrower. Mm. But then, you know, again, it comes back to that very <laughs> interesting question of what is service design? And it's almost like asking, and I'm going to step carefully now. Okay. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm ready to pounce, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm treading carefully here uh, because, say, I give this example a lot, also because I'm an aviation geek, right? Yeah. So say you're an agency and there is an agency, for example, that designed the interiors of all aircraft, all <laughs> Boeing aircraft, right? Yeah. And they do a great job of it. They're specialists. There's, there are just very few firms who are capable of taking an airframe and turning it into an environment conducive to travel, right? So they designed, for example, seats and mm. the lighting systems, all the possible affordances you can imagine within the cabin. They designed cabins, perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. Including the flight entertainment. And they are truly designed uh, a design firm now could they say they are in the business of aircraft design you cannot say they're not yeah they're a contributing factor yeah exactly but then when you say aircraft design it conjures up a different image you first think about oh airbus and boeing who are designing the aircraft you know the flight definition yeah so so that's thing of service design so if you're designing something which is part of a service say for example Mostly, which is interaction design or or the US user experience uh, or the user interfaces or touch points or the journey you know through an ecosystem mm. is that service design well, whatever you're designing is of course part of a service, yeah, but then you do not get into the things like the contract or the financials and how are we going to charge for it or the staffing of it right yeah, or getting licenses and permits to operate as an airline is that part of service design? Uh, I noticed that you have the uh, Power of 10 podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, with Andy. Exactly. So I think that might be a good way to, for uh, sort of an analogy for us to think about having the capacity to zoom in and zoom out. And I think that's perhaps a skill that any good designer has or should have to be able to very quickly in your mind have that ag- agility to zoom in and zoom out and not lose your mind. Basically. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it must be like to be a business person who um, hears this conversation, like, you know, what is service design, what is services, you know, versus Mm -hmm. all the different types of design, it must be extremely confusing. So if you were to describe what a service is not, how would you do that? (laughs) That's a good question. Let me me take you to discussion. So when I'm teaching this, this question often comes up. Someone will ask me like, this is a chair. Can this be a service? Right. And I say, well, do I have to pay for the chair? Let's start there, right? Do I own the chair or not? So and more interesting is the washing machine. In fact, uh, one of my, uh, I have a simple slide. It has two washing machines, one with a coin slot and the other with not. And I thought that was one of the best parts, the first part of the book. That paragraph summed everything up. That was, It was a beautiful part where the, the representation of the coin reflected a very simple trade contract or an agreement between the artifact and the person. Exactly. So sometimes I think it comes down to as simple as that. If you own the washing machine and you're supplying the electricity and you are liable for its upkeep, right, and you don't have to pay for it and the washing machine cannot refuse you, then it's not a service. 
And, and I found it very intriguing as I was reading about smart contracts about a couple of years ago, where this gentleman, Nick Sabo, I think, very long time ago, talked about the coin slot being the precursor of smart contracts because it enforces the contract. And I think this is fascinating because I look at how part of the universe of services expanding is, if you take Spotify, it's a great example, right? Where you go from owning records to not owning them and therefore uh, requiring or, or enjoying the service. You are literally borrowing somebody else's library and, and, and you hit play and, and the music starts playing. Yeah. So if we, if we shift slightly and, and think about it, uh, it's a great question. What is not a service? Well, a service is not servitude for sure. You can't force a service, right? You can't force someone to provide you a service. Yeah. There has to be some sort of an offer, a consideration and acceptance. That's basically the basic definition of a contract. So a service has a contract. Now, whether it's a contract between society and its citizens, like say, uh, for example, police, right? It's a service for sure. Do you actually pay for the police? Yes, you do. Do you do you get an itemized bill? Definitely not. Impossible, right? Yeah. Did I just, for example, you and I, while, we, while having this conversation, did I just enjoy the law enforcement service? Yes. I think I did because somehow I think I'm, we are in these protected environments that are maintained with a lot of effort. So I think whether something is service or not, this should be some a few simple rules. One of them is that are the two parties involved, right? Yeah. And is there an agreement? And is there some payment or consideration? And it doesn't have to be in cash. You know, it mm. could be in kind. The relationship between Facebook and us, for example. Do I pay for Facebook? I think just discussing whether Facebook is a service and for whom will clarify a lot of things. Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting because... If you look at the, the premise of bringing design closer and you've got business people and sometimes designers as well will question, am I working on a product or a service or how do those two intersect and in what I'm actually working on within my organization? Mm-hmm. And if the designers are becoming the salespeople for a new way of thinking to bring that kind of cultural shift in their organizations forward, it's important that we have a, a better understanding and a definition of what service is, let alone what service design is. So um, that's what I, I enjoyed the most in the early stages of, of the book where you covered off lots of different examples. You know, everything is a service, like a SaaS product, you know, ownership versus utilization. And what was the one thing? Everything is multiplying. Yeah, I think this is the care where, where services create their own problems. So services are solutions to our problem. In fact, services are, are go-to solutions to many of our problems. Think about transportation, for example, right? Yeah. And yet, what I shift in, in that particular chapter is after discussing why services are these marvels of design, you know, my favorite one is always be closing what do you mean by that? Yeah, I want to ask you that as well. T- tell me what you mean. Well, first of all, it's another movie reference, Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross, uh, Always Be Closing, yeah. the famous uh, Alec Baldwin uh, meme. Yeah. But also I, I, I looked at and look at some of the services, like take, for example, storage and iCloud. We keep taking pictures. The more pictures we take, the more storage we need. Mm. But then we, this, this storage magically expands and then we take even more pictures. Or the ability for services to make possible what's impossible somehow things fall into place um you know if you need more in in the book i talk about especially this is true with digital services you know the magic of software and and technology Mm. allows services to always step in and close the gap you know do you need food on your table all those delivery services they're always any anywhere there's a gap services come and close the gap yeah and and i just find that very fascinating 
Yeah. And I think that section follows the other section, which says, you know, services are making, uh, making possible the impossible. I, I call them like this bionic exoskeletons, right? That artificially extend our range because of services. I can talk to you right now. Yeah. You're in Dublin and I'm in Utrecht. It's possible. It's just, if you, it's just crazy. I talk about how our ancestors would be shocked that I can. We can do that. I can, I can, uh, yeah, I can send you a payment just like that. I just paid someone like, what? Did you? I didn't see any coins jingling. Like, did you reach into your even, you know, it's just, that's what I mean by always be closing. There's, there's so much innovation going on yeah. that if there's a gap, if there's an inability, if we have faced a difficulty in doing something, so there's some service that comes in and closes that gap. Yeah. And then, there's some service behind that service closing its own gap. So while, for example, I have iCloud, there are some data centers out there and there's more bandwidth and there's 5G. Yeah. <laughs> You've got me going here. Oh, no, 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 which is good. Like I, I just sit back. Yeah. yeah. So we mentioned about the importance of a contract in what a service is when I, when I asked you what a, what a service is not. Yeah. Yeah. So if it doesn't have a contract, it's not a service. Can you think of anything else that could also um, be included in that? I've heard... Uh, some explanations, um, or let, let's say a certain point of view, right? Um, mm. What is a certain dominant logic about services, yeah. which says something like the chair you're sitting on provides you a service because it creates benefit for you, yeah. right? I disagree. The chair has no choice but to provide benefits for you because you're sitting on it and you control the chair. You own the chair. Yeah. And so it's therefore, really, I think I'm coming more from an economics point of view, right? Yeah. What are services? Therefore, the chair is not providing, it's useful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really where we, we in, along the way, started conflating or, or broadening the meaning of the word service so broadly that it became less useful. When we thank soldiers, when we see soldiers, we say, thank you for your service. Yeah. That's not wrong because indeed that is a service, you know, it's. We take care of it. So see, you see the problem there? Yeah. S- suggesting that anything that creates use for a person being considered a service, I feel it's going too far. Then it loses the meaning of what even, ser- if everything is a service then. But do you think, does service need a human interaction? Not necessarily so. So, um, and that was a question about should, using the word, whether should I use the word human or people, right? Yeah. Is that semantics? Well, it's interesting, right? We have natural persons and legal persons, right? Yeah. So we are now grappling with the idea, can robots be citizens? That's a really interesting conversation, by the way, happening. Yeah. There's a whole discussion about citizens as things and things as citizens, right? Very, very fascinating. But let's take for a moment a service being provided between two entities, right? Yeah. Two what are called legal persons, two corporations. So at that level, of course, these corporations are human enterprises. To that extent, you can say, well, they are humans involved, right? But we're getting into a point of like my machine receiving a connection to the internet and their services that are happening between machines. So, for example, uh, Dropbox. One thing fascinating is uh, when I read about, I think I sort of briefly covered in my book about Netflix, right? Yeah. Running 700 different, roughly about 700 different microservices in the background just to make the service of streaming video to your screen reliable, convenient, pleasurable, right? Yeah. And those are services between software agents. So there are no humans involved, but they are veritable services, clearly creating performances, clearly creating affordances between things. There is a clear contract. There are outcomes, but then we, when we get into an experience, we, we get into the, well, 
what was the experience of my machine? Did it have trouble connecting with that? Yeah. You know, content delivery network. But these are services, right? Uh, you can't say they're not services. They fit every definition of a service, but there are no humans involved, which is why deliberately I end my book with this fictional uh, story about the Sunshine Cap Company, where this is an enterprise entirely made of machines or non-humans, right? Artificially intelligent. And they own the cap company. They're the entrepreneurs. They're the owners and drivers. So I, I end with this speculation of a future in which there will be services between mich- enterprises that are not human. Yeah. You know, and that could be no, not very far away where, for example, a machine can enter into a contract with me, a human, yeah. because the machine is recognized as a legal entity yeah. and the machine can therefore, you know, provide me a service and I can issue a payment. The machine becomes more prosperous. So th- that's kind of true for most things. At a certain Zoom level, you could imagine that, that kind of reality happening. And I guess just going back to my thing of like a designer or a business person sitting in in an organization saying, are we in the middle of creating a service? You know, sometimes people might come to me and say, we need a website or an app. And I might say to them, well, look, you know, let's look at this a little bit differently. Let's look at what Zoom level, where, where this is sitting at and what does it look like? So to give some tactical and strategic advice to people listening, like, you know, try and understand the Zoom level where where people are sitting at and the idea that you're currently having whereabouts on the Zoom levels of two, four, eight. And so where where that's at to try and understand the relationship between the layers. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, two, four, eight. I think one of my goals, hopefully I have some moderate success is to, to be able to have a discussion about services where we avoid the semantic trap, yeah. right? And to be able to say, uh, let me draw you a definition of a service, right? Let me, uh, so this way anybody could have, it's it's like how other sciences advance, right? Like, like chemistry, right? We learn how to speak in symbols and never ever be confused about, you know, are we talking about hydrochloric acid or, you know, we say soda. Did you mean sodium bicarbonate, right? Or did you mean fizzy drink yeah right? yeah so so i think i think that's why some of this is driven by uh, if i were to describe my book another way i would call it the algebra and geometry of of service design because we say okay there are always two sides so that's the two right yeah. and these two sides when they uh when, when we talk about yeah exactly when they explored you say well there's always demand there's always supply there's always a customer there's always a provider and then they promise each other performances and affordances that becomes four, right? And when you go further into part two of the book, you learn that every service is a set of four promises. Yeah. Promises of performance and affordance with respect to demand and supply. So the idea is to be able to say, if you ask me, I'm a business designer or I'm a service designer, or, or we are thinking of understanding or creating a new service, then the goal is to be able to very simply and clearly say, okay, so then we need to identify what those four promises are that makes it a service, not three, not two, right? And this fits very well with the very well understood notion of services being co-productions, right? Yeah. Or co-creations. And that is in fact true. So in other words, a service does not exist just because a provider is promising something. Yeah. The customer has to promise something back. So that I've hopefully clarified the idea of exactly why services are co-productions. Yeah. So that's really um, the idea of having a, a discussion, uh, going back to your question, how do we know we are, are we designing a service? And therefore, what are, what are the parts? Yeah. And that also leads to the a more important question of, and I think this is important, especially because of the reduced set of tools that a service designer 
is expected to have, mm-hmm. right? How do I know the design is complete, right? So if you look at a, a service blueprint or a journey map, what constraint is telling me there's something that is missing and something that I do not have to discover through trial and error. Yeah. So this brings us to the whole question of what is a service as a whole and what are its parts? Yeah. And therefore, how do we look at services at once as a whole that is other than the sum of its parts? And I think that for me is very important from a design perspective, because as designers, we want our designs to be complete, not perfect, which is different from being complete, right? And a design being complete would mean that we have accounted for everything that needs to go into the design to produce the effect that we tend to refer to as outcomes and experiences. Those are the effects. Yeah. I agree with you. Like the, the only thing I, I probably disagree with you there is like designs being complete. It's very rare that anything is complete. And, you know, by having that kind of finite language being used about, especially around services and, and designs and products and apps and all that and so forth, they're never complete. They're always evolving. Allow me to clarify, if I may. When I, this is the problem with words, yeah. right? When I say complete, I, and that's what I meant. I, I didn't mean perfect or okay. finished. I meant that I have accounted for everything. So this is, again, we need to switch back to okay. the design of, uh, say, for example, I'm, I'm designing salt, right? And I keep going back to this, to these analogies because they're important to see how things happen in other fields, right? Yeah. Say we are trying to design better salt and we do not know that salt includes chlorine. We just know it's sodium, right? Yeah. No matter how much effort we put in, no matter how much of research, talking to end users of salt and the user experience of salt, we're never going to improve salt while being completely oblivious of the chlorine atom, right? In other words, our design should include and account for everything that goes into a molecule of salt. Interestingly enough, there is something called molecular modeling of services. Every now and then it pops up. It goes way back to what I call the Genesis article of service design. Yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> the Harvard Business, the Harvard Business Review uh, oh, yeah. essay written by G. Lynn Shostag back in the 80s, who first defined the term service blueprint, yeah. right? Still one of those classic articles. Um, and uh, the shoeshine example. Yeah. In the same articles, she also introduced another concept called molecular modeling, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm using a lot of analogies of you know, the water molecule and the salt molecule, you know, I'm borrowing from a paper that goes way back. And molecular modeling, by this very definition, forces you to think of the wholeness of it, right? And it lends itself very well to the more recent realization that services are systems and therefore should be designed as such. And that's what I mean by complete, not Not not, finite uh, in terms of like, yeah, or finished or finessed, right? That do we account for everything that goes into a service Otherwise, we are likely, uh, uh, we, we, we all, what are we trying to do? We're just trying to reduce the chances of failure, yeah. right? That's all we're trying to do. And sometimes service failing would mean a very annoyed customer with an empty plate. And what are the consequences of that you've caused, you know, yeah. grief. But sometimes when services fail, as you know, like, as in the case of, for example, Facebook or or a health system yeah. going towards bankruptcy, those failures are just too big. For us to somehow said, oops, we, we didn't think of that. 
to be yeah. part of the design, right? Those are just too much, right? So that's why I'm loving the realization and, and more and more, I see it a lot where more, more practitioners in, in the service design world are reading up on systems thinking. I'm delighted by yeah. that. Because we, from systems thinking, we learn to see services for their structures and their dynamics. And, and that, oh yeah, oh yeah. And that will only lead to better skills, better practices. It'll only lead to better design. So I'm very pleased with that, that development in the last few years. At Excellent. Majid, we're coming towards the end of this particular episode. We are going to do three episodes. So we're going to stick on this theme because I think it's really interesting and, and fleshing it out a bit more. But before we do that, I want to ask you, the, the three questions from hell, as I call it. And the first question is, um, <laughs> what's the one thing you wish you were able to banish from the industry and why? The narrow interpretation of service design to be the design of experiences. Okay. <laughs> that is a loaded question. And I'm not, I'm not going to ask uh, again, why? <laughs> You're not going to ask why? <laughs> Go on. Try and give us a, um, an answer to why. Because the word experience is overloaded. Yeah. And... In my book, I talked about outcomes are what we pay for, experiences are what we pay with. In fact, yeah. interpret experience as a burden and therefore designing better experiences, reducing the burden. But the word experience design leads to this unnecessary confusion that services are the designing of experiences yeah. that we necessarily enjoy. Yeah. So that's, that's one reason I, I would, I wouldn't, so banish is perhaps too, too strong a word, yeah. but I would, I would encourage people to stop describing service design as experience design or equivalent of it. I think it's just being more careful. I think let's banish being loose with words. How about that? Yep, that's right? nice. The next question is, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? I think when, you, when, you're, designing, uh, when you're designing services, one of the challenges I face and what I sort of struggle with is there, there are a lot of different levels at which people are operating and sometimes being able to very quickly calibrate the level of thinking, right, that is necessary, that works for the entire team versus forcing people to think at one level versus another, that's a challenge. And uh, I think it's got to do with more about being better at group dynamics or organizational dynamics. Yeah. Is something that, uh, yeah, I guess one can never learn enough yeah, of that. That's a, that's a good answer. At, at what level to set the level of thinking, which is very hard. If you set it too high, then you can't be more inclusive in the design process. If you set it to too low, then we're wasting the talent that's available to us. So that is a challenge in organizing design, I think. I think there's some good work around that. Yeah. All right. And then the last question is, what advice would you give to design talent for the future? To take on the most difficult challenges earlier on in your career, and that'll uh, that'll just only uh, benefit. <laughs> I was going to say build character. No, no. <laughs> it'll benefit you later in life. I think is what you're you're trying, yeah, to, try yeah, to say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Majid Iqbal, um, it was lovely speaking to you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Appreciate it. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to Bringing Design Closer. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.